We're going to explore God's Word together today. We're going to be in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to go there. And the Lord that is in this place is going to make himself known to us through the Word. And so uh, John chapter 1 is where we will be today. We've been in the series during Advent called A Season of Hope. And it's my prayer that some of what is shared in worship or through the Word would fill you with hope. May this be a season of hope as we journey through around this Advent wreath, culminating in the Christ candle on Christmas Eve. I pray that it would be a journey of hope and you experience the hope we have in Christ. My friend David is a pastor in Kentucky. He's a gifted pastor. He's talented. I look up to him. And uh, I discovered on social media last year that he made a decision to, uh, to become Santa Claus. He made a decision. He's going to grow his beard out, and um, he was going to be Santa Claus. His wife is a photographer. She is amazingly talented, produces just incredible art. And um, as a little side hustle for the holidays, uh, David became Santa Claus, and his wife um, set up Santa sessions and, and just gave families this memory of having their kids you know, sit on Santa's lap and all that kind of stuff. And it's good. I'm happy for David. I think it's been very successful for them. But I share that with you to say it it has created a little bit of a midlife crisis for me. David is one year older than me. Okay? He's one year older than me, and he makes a really good Santa Claus. Like, he, he grew the beard out, and a lot of the white in the beard is natural. I think they did brush in a little bit of gray, but for the most part, he's got the white beard, and the costume is great, and his wife does a great job with the, with the pictures, and like the kids, they pull on his beard, and they know it's real, like he's the real deal. And I'm just like, my friends cannot be Santa Claus. I can't be in, in that group, but, but I am. But I am. Uh, David is the real thing. He's the real Santa. He's got the real beard. And uh, I'm happy for him, but at the same time, I am not cool with that. But Santa is one of the institutions of the American Christmas, and uh, I apologize. This is the second week in a row I've thrown a little bit of shade on to Santa, and so I I apologize for that, uh, which is sort of a sorry, not sorry kind of apology for me today. Uh, But but he's one of the, the things that make our American Christmas what it is. And around our celebration here in America of Christmas, we say things like peace and kindness and hope and love. And we talk about these things in abstract ways, largely divorced from the actual story of Christmas. Uh, This came into focus for me this week. My radio station is on 24-7 Christmas music. I know yours is as well. And so I heard this little ditty. I think you'll recognize it. Uh, peace on earth will come to all if we all just follow the light. So let's give thanks to the Lord above because Santa Claus comes tonight. Uh, you've heard that. And that just jumped out at me that you know Gene Autry had this vision of peace on earth coming to all. And it's a really simple solution. Like all you have to do is follow the light. There's some light out there. Just follow it. And, uh, you know, we're going to have peace on earth. I thought, man, there's the answer right there. How many times has the United Nations tried to bring peace to war? And how many times have we had summits to 
have peace on earth. And man, he's got it right there. Just, hey, just follow the light. Peace on earth is going to come, you know. But I don't think Gene Autry ever set out to be a theologian. So maybe I'm subjecting him to, you know, some things that, that he never intended to be subjected to. But that lyric and this idea is an example of just the whole, all the extracurricular stuff that surrounds Christmas during this time. We talk about things like peace and hope and love, and we do so sort of very abstractly. And all of the, the Hallmark movies and the sentimental stuff that's out there and the popular songs that are on our radio. It's, it's trying to engender within us some kind of like feeling, the Christmas spirit, if you will. It's trying to make everyone just a little bit nicer and a little bit kinder. And, and it's kind of this idea that if we dig down deep enough, like follow the light, whatever the light is, you define it for you. But whatever the light is, you follow it, you find it, you dig down deep, you try to get that Christmas spirit. And friends, you're just, you're just one peppermint mocha away from experiencing the joy and the hope and the love and the, the peace that is available to us. You're just that close. And I would say to you that, that even Santa with real whiskers, like even Santa with real whiskers is not the real thing that brings hope and peace, and joy, and love. These things that we talk about as we light the candles of this Advent wreath. What we are celebrating here is not something that's abstract. We're celebrating something personal and specific. Something that happened in a moment in time. A decision that God made to save the world in a very particular way. That is the story that we're telling. And so John, in the first chapter of his gospel, he gives us some rich theological language to help us understand just what God is doing. And so I want to unpack that a little bit for you. It's simply called the prologue to his gospel. If, if you just said, we're going to study the prologue today, you, theologians wouldn't have to ask, well, which book? I mean, they know the, the prologue is John chapter 1. And, that, and that's where, where, where we're going to be today. And I want to say this as we jump into this, I cannot possibly, in the brief time that we have together, I cannot possibly unpack everything that's here. But I'm choosing to read it in its entirety because this is what the people of God do. You need to hear this during this season. And as we read through it, we're going to pull out some things that teach us that Jesus is the real thing. And Jesus is the real thing that produces hope, peace, love, and joy uh, in our lives. And it would not be possible without him. And so, so let's go to John, John chapter 1. And there may be some things here you don't fully understand, but, but let's work our way through it. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him Nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. 
He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but children born of God. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father has made him known. This is the word of God today for the people of God. And we hear this today, and and there's probably a lot here we don't understand. And we're just going to walk through some key concepts here. But one of the things you, you may immediately notice as you're putting together the story of Jesus, you may be familiar that Matthew and Luke give some backstory. They tell you a little bit about what's going on before the birth of Jesus. In Matthew, we read the angels showed up to Joseph, or an angel showed up to Joseph. Wise men showed up after Jesus was born. So there's a little bit of backstory to the early life of Jesus. Luke gives us probably the most We hear about the miraculous birth of John the Baptist and an angel shows up to Mary and angels show up in the the shepherd where fields are keeping watch over their flock by night. And so those two gospel writers give us a lot of backstory. What John does is he takes us all the way back, like way back. How does he begin? In the beginning. You can't go any further back than that. You recognize that? Does that sound familiar? Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so this this passage takes us back. And and what John is doing is sharing some very weighty, some very foundational truths that help us understand exactly what is going on in his story of Jesus and what Jesus is doing. And and so here are three concepts that we're going to unpack that are going to help us understand the story of Jesus, not only during Christmas, but as we tell the story leading up to Easter. And the first is this idea of logos, or word. John says, in the beginning was the word, or in Greek, the the logos. And this word is just dripping with just theological significance. I'll just tell you two things about it. One of which is, it comes to us from the world of Greek philosophy. And so the logos in Greek philosophy, it, it, kind of, it kind of described the highest ideals, some of the mysteries of the universe. 
these, these things that were sort of programmed into the order of creation, the, the highest form of knowledge. So in secular Greek culture, that's what logos would have meant. But in the Hebrew imagination, logos is significant as well. Because how does God go about the business of creation? By, by his word, by what he speaks into existence. That's the Genesis 1 and 2 story. God is speaking and worlds are being created. He's creating by the power of his word. Proverbs 8 is a hymn of creation. It talks about how wisdom was programmed into the fiber of the world. And so this, this idea of God creating and speaking worlds into existence. And so John uses this word logos to combine all of that for both a Hebrew and a Jewish audience. And, and he's saying, in the beginning was the word Jesus. Jesus was with God in the beginning. And Jesus was God. All of that is encapsulated, not in an idea, in an abstraction, but in a person. Jesus, the, the second member of the Trinity. Jesus is the word of God that is now spoken into the world. And so here's our world that we live in. We're trying to make sense of tragedy. We're trying to make sense of things that are going on in our world. And we get advice from Hallmark and from the popular songs on our radio to follow the light. It's abstract. It's impersonal. Just light. You define it however you want. Follow the light. And everything's going to be okay. Or, and I, see, I see people trying to comfort those who are mourning. And they might say things like, hey, just, let's just meditate Let's just meditate on peace. Or somebody might say, hey, I'm sending you good vibes today. I know what you're going through, and so I just want to send you these abstract vibes. They're detached from any actual reality, but just know that I'm sending you my vibes. I'm sending you good vibes today. My thoughts are with you. And the world is trying to make sense of the, the tragedies that are happening in our world and John is saying, oh, your good vibes, your, your thoughts, those aren't going to solve anything. What God has done is the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. And the Word gives light. And the darkness tries to overcome this light. The darkness tries to snuff out the light. But the light has not overcome it. And so our hope is anchored in the person of Jesus. He was and he is God. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a guru. He's not a prophet. He's God. And he holds all things in his hand. And he was with God in creation. He was and is God. So logos or word helps us understand what Christmas is all about. Second word, lock this away in your brain, is flesh flesh. Okay, just hold on to it because we're going we're gonna to come back to it in just a moment. John is pulling in a lot of things from the Old Testament, and, and one of the things he's pulling in is, is this constant theme for the Israelites. So constantly throughout the story of Israel, God's holiness and the fallenness of humanity intersect. The absolute holiness and majesty of God are on full display, and, and heaven and earth collide a lot in the Old Testament. And it's not always so good for the Israelites. It's also not always so good for the enemies of the Israelites when God's holiness and the earth collide in these huge stories. 
And one example is the Israelites are on their way to the promised land and they're in the wilderness and God chooses to reveal himself to Moses and to give the Ten Commandments. And here are the Israelites, they're camped at the base of Mount Sinai and they look up at the top of Mount Sinai and it's covered in clouds, there's smoke, there's fire, there's lightning, there's rumblings, there's peals of thunder and the Israelites are down at the bottom and they are cowering in fear and respect of the holiness of God that is manifesting itself on top of the mountain. And Moses is in that. He's in the middle of all that. He's communing with God and he's receiving revelation from God. And and God says to Moses, I'm going to pass by, but you can't see me face to face and live because you're a sinful person. And so as I pass by, turn away so that you can live. And so that's what Moses does. The holiness of God and, and earth, it's colliding there. Moses turns away. God passes by. Moses receives the Ten Commandments. But that moment is is burned into the Israelite imagination to understand that that God is holy and he's he's magnificent and he's to be feared. Not like horror movie fear, but like respect and and reverence. There are these moments where, where the holiness of God and the earth collide. Now, during this season... You've probably made a trip to see Santa Claus, haven't you, parents? You, you've, you've made this trip. Santa is somewhere. It might be my friend David. Who knows? Maybe you went and saw Santa in Kentucky. But Santa is somewhere, and, and you're going to go see him. And most of the time, this is a very positive, a very happy moment. You go, your child or your grandchild are filled with awe and wonder, and they sit on Santa's lap, and... Santa says, ho, 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 right? You know what movie that's from, right? Um, Most of the time, it's like a really, really great encounter. But did you know there's something called Santa-phobia? It's a real thing. It's diagnosed. Santa-phobia, a real fear of the big guy in the red suit. And and maybe your child has had Santa-phobia, and that encounter's looked like this. You thought you were going to get a really good picture, and like... This is what you ended up with. Let me tell you what's going on in the, in the mind of that young lady there. And if you have a picture like this of your child or your grandchild, let me tell you what's happening there. there, there are this, we are taking our children to see Santa Claus at a time in which they are understanding concepts like power, authority, morality, uh, judgment. And what are we telling them about this mythical person is that he has power. And he knows when you've been good. He's omniscient. He knows when you've been good. He knows when you've been bad and he's able to make judgments and he can judge your life and he can take the, the, the quality of all of your choices and he can decide whether or not you get a lump of coal in your stocking or what you actually wanted. And in the seven-year-old imagination, something like Hebrews 10.23 is going on where it says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so Santa has these godlike powers. And it's no wonder that some children like cling to their parents and bury their head in their parent's shoulder when they say, Will you sit on this person's lap? Will you tell this person what you want for Christmas? Are you kidding me? Because here's Santa. He's sitting on his throne. There's lights and there's minions all around him. 
And he is making judge, Santa sits in light on the North Pole. And who can approach? Who can approach his holiness? Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Santa knows that I stole fruit snacks at preschool. I can't possibly go and sit on his lap. First service thought that was hilarious. Uh, It's a tough crowd here. Tough crowd. But I'm telling you, like, this is what's going on. Santa's a big deal, okay? Santa's a big deal because all of these things are coalescing there uh, in a person who, who shows up. And it's more than some kids can handle. You get a sense of the holiness that's, ha- the holiness that's colliding here. What John says is our God became flesh. Our God became flesh, this holiness of God, God that exists in inapproachable light, God that exists in unapproachable holiness. In a moment in time, in a specific place, he became flesh. And he lives among us. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. This phrase, made his dwelling among us or, or lived among us, it's a Greek word pronounced eskinosin. It's a Greek word eskinosin. And it's related to this word that describes the, the Hebrew tabernacle. Remember this Old Testament story? God said, the tabernacle is the place where I will dwell. You'll set the tabernacle up. There'll be the Holy of Holies. And there in the Holy of Holiness, Holy of Holies, heaven and earth collide. And only the priest will go into the Holy of Holies and only at certain times and only with a certain sacrifice. And what John is saying is that God has become flesh and literally has tabernacled with us. Literally, in the person of Jesus, a person who has flesh and a person who gets dirt in between his toes and a a person who's subjected to things like the common cold, this person is walking our earth and he is tabernacling the very holiness of God. The holiness of God and the earth are colliding in the person of Jesus. And so God's presence is no longer confined to the holy of holies. We're no longer safely distant from this holiness of God. The holiness of God is among us and is moving among us and has become personal and close. And so John says, we have seen his glory. We've seen his glory. Moses had to turn his face, but in Jesus We can see the glory of God face to face. The glory that fills the tabernacle, the glory that made Isaiah exclaim, woe is me, I'm an unclean person. That glory is now face to face with us in the person of of Jesus. And how is it that God glorifies his name? How is it God that reveals his holiness to us? He sends his son to walk on our earth to breathe our air, to be afflicted with our diseases, to be subjected to death, to show us what obedience to the will of the Father looks like, to taste death on our behalf. And then because of his obedience, the Father raises him up on the third day. And the resurrection 
proclaims the glory of God. A resurrection that we are invited to participate in. We are invited to enjoy through what Jesus has done for us. Oh, the understatement of the year is we have seen his glory. We have seen this amazing thing that God has done in in Christ. We've experienced it. In the 90s, there was a hit song called What If God Were One of Us? Just a stranger on a bus. And the song speculated what it would be like if God were one of us. I don't think Joan Osborne read John chapter 1. We know what it would be like if God were one of us. He would love unconditionally. He would welcome the stranger. He would live with compassion. He would go to those on the margins. He would lay down his power. He would lay his life down for the sins of the world, for my sins, for your sins. He would taste death on our behalf and he would be raised victorious on the third day. This is our God. This is the glory of God. And through Jesus, we are connected to hope, to peace, to joy, to love. It's through Jesus. We experience the fullness of God in Jesus. This is good news. It's not something abstract. It's not something deep within you. Just meditate long enough, dig down deep and try to find it. It's Jesus. Experience the fullness of God in Jesus. Word. Flesh. This third concept is, this third word is known. Known. How is it that God is known to us? Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father, has made him known. Has made him known. The enfleshment or the incarnation of Jesus has made God known. This word is exegemi, and it it simply means to explain, to set forth in language, to, to take something that is distant and abstract, and to explain it in personal and specific ways. And so here's what John is saying, is that there's part of me that wants to say everything you ever wanted to know about God, but I have to backtrack there, right? Because there's a lot about God I want to know. There's a lot of questions I have that actually have not been answered. But what John is saying in, in Jesus' exegemine, or making God known, is everything that we need to know about God. Everything we need to know about salvation. Everything we need to know about the the future hope that we have and the hope that we have today. It has all been revealed in Christ. The way he loves, the way he lives, the way he talks, all of that makes God known. And I fear that this miracle of the Incarnation is taken for granted. And let me tell you how I think we're taking for granted the the incarnation. Two years ago, well, in March it'll be two years, we began to walk through a season known as the pandemic. And a lot of things that were physical 
suddenly became virtual. We had to virtualize things that normally we would experience physically. We would normally be in the room with each other and we would normally be sharing meals together. And there's things that required people to be in close proximity with one another. And all of a sudden we had to figure out how do we make those things virtual? How do we transform them to megapixel? And so we begin to virtualize meetings. We all learned how to operate Zoom. And there's some things about the changes that have happened in the two years that, that I like. I like how easy it is for me to shop, especially here in, the, in Christmas. I like that shopping's been made a virtual experience for me in a lot of ways. It's a good thing. But the church had to pivot very quickly. We've got to figure out a way to worship virtually. We've got to figure out a way to take what happens here and transform it to megapixel. And I just want to say we did the absolute best we could. <laughs> it was not perfect. I actually never thought this day would happen. Midway through, you know, the, when we canceled Easter or when we canceled a physical gathering of Easter, that was the that was probably the low moment of my ministry. You mean we're not going to gather for Easter? People are going to hear the good news of the resurrection on their phone? Give me a break. But here we are. We're gathered again. And, and I, if there's anything I'm taking away from this season that we've walked walk through, it is that, that the gospel is not a concept. It is not an idea. If it's just a concept, just download it on your phone and read it, okay? If it's just a concept, just download it. Read about it. And there are actual religions that have reduced it to a concept, an idea. There's one religion that believes that God took all the concepts that we need to know about salvation and he put them on golden plates and he hid them in upstate New York. And on these golden plates is the means to salvation. It's a concept. It's an idea. There's also a religion that says God revealed these concepts to a prophet and a prophet wrote these things down. And now these concepts live and, and, and we subject ourselves to these concepts and that's how we make peace with God. But Christianity is unique in that it says the Word became flesh. It was necessary that God put on our skin. It was necessary that God suffer on our behalf. It was necessary that God show us, give us an example of what it's like to be in relationship with God. And so what Jesus is doing is making known the Father, not by giving you lots of concepts, but by becoming incarnate, by saying this is who God is. I was with God in the beginning, in the, before Abraham, I am. If you want to follow God, if you want to be in relationship with God, then follow me. I'm here to show you the way. So friends, the gospel is not a concept, it's a community. Because every time this community gathers by the Holy Spirit, I experience God. I see you smile and I see you cry. 
I see your highs, I see your lows, and I see God in the midst of that. And there's, there's something that I can't experience when we're all on our phones somewhere. It's not something we can put in megapixel. But this gathering of the people of God has, has become so important for me over the last two years. Because if it was a concept, then God could have hid it in upstate New York or revealed it to a prophet. But it's not a concept. It's a person. It's Jesus who became flesh. and said, this is who God is. And so we gather, and this physical gathering reminds us. We are a community filled with God's Holy Spirit. The gospel is not an idea, but an incarnation of the one and only Son of God. This is good news. And at the end of the day, what, what is going on in the, in the incarnation is that God became like us so that we might become like him. Do, do you understand what's going on there? God became like us so that we might become like him. There's a story of a very faithful priest. His name is Father Damien. In the late 1800s, in what was then known as the Kingdom of Hawaii, the government did not have a solution for an outbreak of leprosy. They did something that we've become very accustomed to recently. They instituted a policy of quarantine. So here are these lepers on the islands of Hawaii. And as you know, leprosy is an infectious disease. It's able to spread. And so they, they didn't have a whole lot of solutions. And so they took these people that had been infected with leprosy, found a secluded island and said, we're sorry, we don't have any other options. You have to live here. And we'll drop in some supplies when we can. You're just going to have to do your best. But we can't risk the rest of the island becoming infected with leprosy. What an awful thing. And there's a young priest on the mainland. His name was Damien. And he heard about what was happening. He heard about this group of people. And he bought a one-way ticket to the kingdom of Hawaii. And he left the mainland and he went to Hawaii and he intentionally went to this leper colony. And he began to minister to these people. And not only did he proclaim this good idea of what Jesus had done, but he lived it out in his physical presence with these people. And so he proclaimed this good news to them. And in proclaiming good news to them, they also built houses together. And they built schools, they built roads they built clinics where they could care for those who were sick. They established leadership structures. And one of the things, one of the things that Father Damien did in his ministry to this colony of lepers was he would bandage the ulcers of the lepers. And he would care for their wounds. And across 11 years of ministry to these people, he also became very good at fashioning coffins. Coffins made of wood was grown there on the island. Became an expert craftsman in this as a, as a way to, to dignify these people who were dying of leprosy. As a way to say, you matter, you have value. 
So he built these beautiful coffins. He dug graves for those who died. He comforted those who were grieving. He shared meals with these people, provided both medical and emotional support. And it was in the eighth year of his ministry to people on this leper colony. He got up on a Sunday morning and began to deliver his sermon before they would celebrate Eucharist together. And he began his sermon like this. He said, we are the lepers. Damien had contracted the disease. After eight years of ministry, finally he was in close enough proximity. It was only a matter of time. But he eventually contracted leprosy. And he stood before that congregation and he said, we are the lepers. Damien died three years later in 1889. He's buried in Hawaii and he's remembered for his work of compassion. But more than what he did in his ministry to these people in the leper colony, his story points us to Jesus. Because was it not Jesus who steps out of heaven and into our world? Is it not Jesus that stands at the crossroads of time and says to a fallen and broken world, we are the lepers. The Word has become flesh. The Word is now human. The Word is now walking among you. The glory of God is among you. And it's full of grace and truth. And Jesus would say, come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, because the word is now made flesh. I will give you rest. We are the lepers. And Jesus stands with us. And because he stands with us, he heals us through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so, three ideas I want you to remember. Let's put them together in a sentence. The Word became flesh so that God might be known. The Word became flesh so that God might be known. And that is what Christmas is all about.